Well, hi, folks. This is Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is Thursday, January the 25th, 2024. This is episode 3436 of the Survival Podcast. Since it is a Thursday, it's time for an expert counsel Q&A show of the week, and I've got a great lineup for you today. <coughs> On the Ron Paul Liberty highlights, we're going to talk about the airstrikes in Yemen. Well, they're not working, but we're going to keep doing it anyway. Because America has to, because some nonsensical reason that came from Joe Biden that you'll hear about from Dan McAdams and Ron Paul. But the person who said... We're going to keep doing it, even though they're not working, as the President of the United States of America. Joe Biden, when asked about this, he was getting on a, on a helicopter, said, is it working? Oh, no, it's not working, but we're going to keep doing it anyway. Sounds par, par for the course for me. Nothing even surprises me anymore. Uh, and then we're going to hear about Bidenomics being a fairy tale from Chris Rossini. He's going to talk about how everything they're saying about it is nonsense and hence a fairy tale. I'm going to tell you it actually is a fairy tale in a, in a very different way. The, the, the grim tales are where the fairy tales come from. The, like the, 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 um, what, I, what I'm trying to say, the, the Disney version of the fairy tales is not the original version of the fairy tales. The original fairy tales were very dark and very gruesome and designed to teach children that if you do stupid shit, you end up dead. Really, that's what they were for. And in that way, Bidenomics is a fairy tale grim. So I'll have some additions to that one when Chris is done. Jeff Lawton will talk about a question. I, I actually am surprised that he was... He had some things to, to put on the list because I've always seen Jeff as, like, kill nothing. Uh, but people wanted to know, are there any critters... That if you see them on your property, you would kill them on site. Jeff and I have a very similar answer here. But I will say that I have two in particular that here, where I'm at here, and it might be different if I was somewhere else. There are two that if I see them here, they are dead if I have the opportunity on site. And they are higher level animals, right? So the, the, the question goes down to things like mosquitoes and black widows and stuff like that. And, and most of that stuff I completely leave alone. I have mosquito mitigation. Jeff will talk about his. I'll add mine to it. But, yeah, there are a few things, and I'll tell you what they are when we get there. Ben Falk will talk about thoughts on an ideal home design. This is, I have a piece of land. I'm going to build a house. I have nothing yet. So how can I do the best house, period? Ben, his background is actually in architecture. And sustainable architecture. So I think this is a great question for him. Uh, new expert council member Joel Riles. How to potty train a 10-month-old puppy. And I know what you're thinking. A 10-month-old puppy should already be potty trained. And it should be. But this is not a problem that was created by the good person who's taken the, the poor dog in. The prior owner is, in my opinion, a complete effing ass clown. And now this correction needs to be made. Joel will talk about that. Nick Ferguson will talk about planting fodder trees and keeping distance from septic systems and gardens. And, of course, this person has been told that, that trees like poplar and willow are like some sort of evil, maniacal thing that if you plant them a mile and a half from your garden, they'll still get there and kill your potatoes. And you could plant them 10 miles from your septic system and they'll find it. This is stupid. 
It is not true, but there are some concerns, Nick. Well, and I am ex I'm exaggerating a little bit, but not that much. I mean, I've heard some of these people, and there are people... How do I put this? There are people that should not talk to other people. And those are those people. I'll just say, at least about... They shouldn't talk to other people about certain things. Yeah. Uh, next up... I have uh, a question for John Pugliano. I didn't have it. One of you guys had a question for John Pugliano about REITs, R-E-I-T-S, which is a real estate fund that works in a specific way. But the bigger question really is about investing in real estate without becoming a landlord or a property flipper. So John does a great job on this one. And then I've got one for you on why you should use bioactive soils, living soils, fungi-inoculated soils, when starting plants for your spring gardens. What I use is my bioactive compost mixed with biochar and a few other things, and I'll talk about that. But I'm also going to tell you what to do if you don't have it yet, but I'm going to give you a little bit of an impetus if you haven't already done so to sign up for and take our bioreactor compost course. And I just put out a blog post right before starting the show today that shows two plants side by side that were both stuck on the same day one into really good potting soil you can buy in a bag that has some bioactive components to it. Um, but the other one was stuck into my bioreactor compost. And the difference is night and day. And we'll talk about how that relates to uh, starting your plants for set out in spring. So, you know, we are weeks away at best for a lot of the country from where you need to be getting your pots and stuff together and get your seeds and get them planted. And it's closer than you think it is. In fact, it's probably time for me to do another whole episode on starting seeds for spring. Because, yeah, I know it's January now, but it's about to be February. And February is a short month. And then March. And many of you are going to put your plants out around March 15th to March 21st. Which means that most of the stuff that you start as seed needs to be started by around Valentine's Day. And Valentine's Day, guys, it's coming very quickly. For those of you that do the Hallmark holidays and stuff and need to not forget, it's only like uh, three weeks away right now, maybe three and a half, something like that. So that's also when you need to get those plants started. By then, at the latest, I would say around February 21st for most of you. Not all of you, but most of you. Anyway, we'll do all of that and more in just a moment. Before we do, let's go ahead and hear from our sponsors of the day today. Sponsor of the day number one today is Above Phone. I love what Above Phone has done. They have taken an off-the-shelf uh, phone category, being the, the, the Android phones, and they have uh, made them where you can order them preloaded with an open-source operating system using an open-source marketplace for your apps. And that way, big tech doesn't spy on you. The manufacturer of the phone can't spy on you. The carrier can't spy on you. And the app manufacturer can't spy on you. And I know what you're thinking, but Jack, there are some apps that I need to be able to use that maybe aren't in that open marketplace. And that could be true. The beauty of this is, with an above phone, if you have to run certain apps that would come from like the Google Play Store, you can create like this little segregated prison for them, and they only do what they do when you turn them on and activate them, and the rest of the time they keep their holes shut. And so you know when you're choosing to use that and you're making that exchange willingly, instead of having all kinds of shit that runs in the background that they say they don't do, but it's been conclusively proven that they do. 
So this is about taking back your technology from big tech. And it is one of those things you could do on your own, but Above Phone makes it easy. They also give you $75 off any one of their phones if you're an MSB member. So make sure you take that. And then if you're like, but I don't, you know, Jack speaks nerd sometimes. And that Romero Romani guy from Above Phone, he really speaks nerd. And I don't know if you get a one hour free hand holding consultation with your new phone with an Above Phone employee to walk you through how to do everything. So there's no excuse to knock it off of big tech now. Next up today, speaking of big tech, how about getting off of the cloud? I'm on the cloud. The cloud. The cloud is a fairy tale. The cloud is a dream. The cloud is a fabrication. The cloud, in a word, or two words, depending on how you spell it, is bullshit. There is no cloud. There's no such thing as a cloud. There's no space walled off. It's like a cloud. It's somebody else's computer. The cloud means you're using Google's computer, Amazon's computer, Twitter's computer, etc. to store your information. You know, that means that you can be censored, shut out of your own information, and shut down, or spied on. We're back to that again. With a Start9 Embassy server, all of that can go away. And hey, if you can use a smartphone and install apps, you can use a Start9 Embassy server. It really is that easy to do. The instructions tell you exactly how to install it, what to do with it, etc. It is fantastic. Then you can do things like this. You can run your own Bitcoin node. You can run your own Bitcoin Lightning node. Don't want to do that? That's fine. How about having end-to-end encrypted messaging only with the people that you allow into the pool? Think about that. And yes, your grandma can do it. Because all you have to say is, Grandma, I'm going to install an app for you, give you a username. This is how I'm going to text you from now on. She doesn't need to know any of the other stuff. It's not that hard, by the way. That's it. And that way you guys can text each other about kittens and the kids and stuff like that. And the NSA can pull their hair out and take 12 months, maybe, if they can even find it, to try to decrypt it to find out you did a message about a cat. And we can end this tyranny of the surveillance state by making it just impossible for them to do logistically, even with their resources. That's just a little bit of what you can do. There's so much more. Pretty much any app or feature used on your phone or your computer has been replicated inside the universe that is Start9 Embassy servers where you have full control to take your technology back. So these two companies, Start9 and Above Phone, they go together like peanut butter and jelly or peanut butter and chocolate or chicken and soup. Check them out today. Start9 Embassy servers and Above Phone both Again, discounts for MSB members. Don't miss out on your discount. With that, let's hear from the team over at the Ron Paul Liberty Report, the weekly highlights about the airstrikes in Yemen and Bidenomics being a grim fairy tale. Yeah, we had this extraordinary situation. I think it was on Friday or Thursday afternoon where President Biden was, I guess he was getting ready to get on a helicopter, and a journalist yelled out a question to him. And it really was extraordinary, and it's worth uh, playing it. So why don't we, if you want to get your earplug, listen, listen, it's a really quick clip, so we have to pay attention. But this is really, this captures the Biden foreign policy. Are the airstrikes in Yemen working? Well, when you say working, are they stopping the Houthis? No. Are they going to continue? Yes. Are they working? Are they stopping the Houthis? No. Are they going to continue? Yes. And so that's what we see if we put this up. Now, Dave wrote up this article from the Washington Post that we have to look at. As the Houthis vow to fight on, U.S. prepares for a sustained campaign. So the U.S., I believe, has hit Yemen seven times at least. You're starting to lose track. 
and it has not dissuaded uh, the the fighters at all from blocking the ships uh, that are entering the Red Sea. So the administration is planning to escalate and get more involved. Officials say they don't expect the operation will stretch on for years, like previous U.S. wars <laughs> in Iraq, Afghanistan, or Syria. Well, do, did we ever expect they would last for 20 years in Afghanistan? No, of course they don't. But this is just an example of the absolute lack of planning. And I think, Dr. Paul, and I think you would, you would echo this, it goes back to the fact that they are doing this without the involvement of Congress whatsoever. Yes, that's where the tragedy is because that, that's where it could have been prevented. So the desire isn't there to prevent it because of the lobbying efforts by the various factions on and, uh, and that's why the uh, politicians roll over. Did somebody write one time and say they, <coughs> that we'll end up with perpetual war for perpetual peace? Yeah. And that, that's, that's a baloney that they have. Yeah. You know, <laughs> and it's perpetual for sure. <laughs> Uh, the officials said Biden believed the United States had to act as what they describe the world's indispensable nation. So that's the reason why he is attacking and escalating in Yemen. Because, not because it's in our interest, it's our vital national interest. It's because the, we are the world's indispensable nation. Thank you, Dr. Paul. Yes, we'll start with the term Bidenomics, which should make everyone cringe when they hear it. And not just by, this isn't a partisan thing, Reaganomics, the whole thing, great, uh, great society, New Deal, fair, fair Deal, Square Deal, it goes all the way back. It's government intervention. Um, and the truth is there are economic laws, period, and they can't be broken. And all these nomics, Bidenomics, Reaganomics, assumes the government is outside of this. They are outside and above these economic laws. And they come up with these special formulas to make the economy great. They have charts and graphs and experts that, that are all over the media explaining why this government intervention is so good. You know, they think it's like a machine, the economy. They turn a few screws here and flip a few switches there and, and presto. And wouldn't you know that things have never been better? Bidenomics, it's never been better, you know? So, I mean, it, it's all comical uh, once you see what's going on. Uh, and, and in truth, you don't need the government to explain or the media to explain to you your economic situation. You have your own bills. You have your own expenses, your own uh, income. Uh, that's all you really need. You, can, you have your own eyes and ears. You can see what's going on. But they're there to basically tell you that all your senses are wrong. You know, if there's a problem, it's you. It's not them, because everything they're doing is great. And, you know, we're a long way from this, but, you know, how the government should uh, deal with the economy is to stay out of it. That's the only thing that they should do. Do not interfere. Uh, if people use force, if they use fraud, then the government steps in and you punish those people. But that is not going to happen. And not only do politicians not want that, but the people don't want that, too. The people want the government to interfere. So that's what they're going to do. And that keeps us in business because we can come on on Fridays and explain why all their interferences are only going to make things worse and not do what they claim. I want to start off with this whole, we're the indispensable nation, indispensable. The world would just dry up and blow away without America. There, in fact, do you know that there was not an actual world 
until 1775 and Lexington Green in 1776 and the Declaration of Independence. There wasn't a world. It wasn't here. It began. The earth began with humanity in 1770. We are indispensable to the world. That's how ignorant that sounds. I want to tell you what that is. That is, when you hear people criticize American exceptionalism and you try to defend the exceptional things within the American Republic, this is what they're talking about. Where America has to intervene, or America is always allowed to intervene, or America is always right, because we're the indispensable nation. Oh, God, I'll tell you what, folks, that is a recipe for disaster at the end of empire. Oh, my God. I cannot tell you how many nations that we even think of as friendly that really wish America would just STFU and go away. That is not the place you want to be in when your empire is in the perils of crumbling at the end of its time. And that's exactly what we continue to do for ourselves. Now, I'm going to actually sound like I'm defending Biden or the administration or the government here, and I'm not. But I will tell you this. Two things can seem of opposition to each other and both be true. These airstrikes are having an impact. We probably are hitting the right kinds of places, and every time you deny an enemy access to or use of their weapons and resources, you do impair their ability to attack you further. But you don't, you don't prevent it or end it. And that's where this, this breakdown in, in, in comms here is that, yes, when you start blowing the shit out of people's like places where they manufacture their weapons, they can't manufacture as many weapons, and you mitigate what they're doing. But... When you're trying to hit people that live in caves and hide in desert and can build this shit anywhere in a country the size of Yemen, which isn't huge, but it's a pretty big landmass, and they're being enabled by the Iranians, and you won't do anything about that because you gave the Iranians the money. Yeah, we have kind of two uh, two sides of the same coin going there. Um, Maybe... As I always say, just maybe the solution is for the United States to stop thinking that we're so important that we need to stick our fingers in every pie and let other parts of the world solve their own problems, including if they don't solve their own problems. You know that's actually okay? It's okay for parts of the world to go into conflict for extended periods of time. The less we intervene, the less time there will be. No nation has ever benefited from a prolonged war. You know who said that? Look it up for yourself, because I'm not always going to give you the answers. Because I'm what do the teachers say? I'm not always going to be here. You won't always have a calculator. I won't always be here, but Google probably will. So look it up for yourself. No nation has benefited from a prolonged war. It's not exactly a new thought, but it's still just as true as when it was written and said the very first time. With that, let's go ahead and move on to our next one. Uh, next up, we're going to hear from Jeff Lawton. Is there any living creature? If it shows up at his, you know, Zaytuna Farms, it's just like a kill-on-sight order. Does that exist within the world of permaculture? Hi, Jeff, coming to you from Australia, midsummer, hot and humid, uh, subtropical, subtropic. So we've got a severe rainy season underway. Um, we have an example here of someone asking questions about um, a list of critters that uh, I would say kill-on-sight. Well, it doesn't actually work out like that because you rarely wipe anything out by killing it and you're not going to get the end of every species. But um, there's an example here, for example, black widow and brown widow and cockroach and water bug and rats and mosquitoes and others. Well, (coughs) 
we have seven of the worst snakes in the world here in Australia, and I've got the Eastern Brown here at Zaytuna Farm and kids. That's not a good combination. Um, if you get bitten on a limb, uh, arm or a leg, and you've got a snake bandage, you've got at least seven hours to get to the hospital, you're probably going to be okay. If you get bitten on the on the chest or the body or the neck or the face, it's a different story. You can't use a snake bandage and you haven't got too long, especially if you get your metabolic rate up. Now, if you're a long way out on the property and you've got to walk back, you've got a problem if that's where you're bitten. So we kind of deal with them if we can. Uh, we could get them re relocated. Um, we could kill them. Um, it's not a good combination, deadly snakes and children. Um, I don't like farming around rats. Rats attract snakes. And where you've got organic feed and seed and spillage, you're going to get rats. Um, I have good farm cats. that I've sort of specialised in training to get rats and not birds. And they deal with them, but they're still getting oh, one a day, sometimes more. So three, four, maybe 500 rats a year. But I don't see any rats. I don't see any rat droppings. Um, we've got them under control, but you're never going to wipe them out. Mosquitoes? Yeah, right. Who likes a mosquito? But you get immune to them in your local area. You don't get any bites come up when you get bitten enough by your local mosquitoes in your local area. But um, small bodies of water, especially small dirty bodies of water that can't hold fish, um, any of those things that you just remove or reduce and you really reduce the mosquitoes we have over 20 dams on the property here and very few mosquitoes at all because they're all full of fish they've all got little fish and big fish and they're just they eat all the mozzie lava and that's what the biggest question in permaculture what do you do about mos mosquitoes and um you make sure that there's no good habitat for the larvae and you really reduce them um so what i i tend to do is i disfavor things there aren't many things I kill on site, um, but I disfavour things. So they're not, pre you know, they're not, you know, thriving populations. No, it's the same with weeds, same with pests, and the same with invasive species that are not favourable. I just disfavour them. Um, I don't create conditions that favour their existence. Um, I give them a bit of a hard time. I don't expect to kill them, but if I do, that's okay. Um, I try and, whatever I kill, I try and return to the land. Um, I disfavour large weed trees uh, by cutting them down and, and, and cutting into the stump with a chainsaw and then don't let them grow any leaves and they all die and become, their roots become compost corridors in the soil. So I kind of take that attitude that Things I don't like or I'd like to kill on site but I can't kill them all, I, I disfavour and I favour the things I do like. So I, I kind of confuse the pests and favour the predators in a garden and I take that attitude right out across the landscape. But I always know there's going to be another brown snake turn up or, you know, there's going to be something going to turn up. But as long as it's not plague proportions, it all works out fine. I think that's the way it is. So great answer from Jeff. I pretty much agree with everything. And, and I doubt he has either of the two critters that, like, 
if I see it and I have means, it is dead the second I see it on my property or even on one of my neighbor's property who is totally okay with me doing that if, uh, if I believe that everything is safe to do it. And those are bobcats and coyotes. And there's a reason. I don't live way out in the country. I live in the urban rural fringe, and we have a significant amount of damage done by both of those animals here. And by shooting them on sight, by killing them on sight, we don't just have less of them. They, they move. There is, there is land, significant amounts of land that is free of humans and has plenty of wild prey on it not that far from here. And if they're there, I have no need to go out and seek them out and destroy them, even though there's quite a bit of that land where I could legally do so. And I wouldn't begrudge anybody who did so, but I'm not, I'm not going to do that just out of, like, pure, we need to get rid of them all. But let me tell you, first of all, bobcats, we have tons of people that keep small livestock, and they will, they will come in and they will take an animal right in front of you, like a bird or something. Like, it, they'll be just right in, take it, and go. And we have dogs that try to keep things away and all, but you know we don't have dedicated livestock garden dogs, and it doesn't make sense for us. And my neighbors damn sure don't have it. Smaller dogs, smaller cats, etc. Bobcats will kill, but it's not a common thing. If I have to pick between who gets the lead bullet first, it would be the coyote. Right? Who gets the lead pill first is a coyote. Coyotes around here. We have had major problems. Years ago, I had one that wiped out half my flock. And I eventually was able to kill it. That coyote was in the throes of, uh, of near death from sarcoptic mange. And it was killing everything. It killed multiple neighbors' dogs, multiple neighbors' cats, multiple neighbors' livestock. And it did plenty of damage here. And yet there were people that were beside themselves that I would kill a living creature. Which, by the way, in another three or four months would have been dead anyway. But God knows how much damage it would do. But completely healthy coyotes around here. Here's, a, here's something that happened. Uh, we have neighbors down the street. They do have dogs, but they again not dedicated livestock guarding dogs. Six goats, a group of a group of coyotes, not just one, managed to get into their fence, uh, which they have electric fence and they have barbed wire. But one way or another, something failed, and they actually dug under the fence. And this pack of coyotes killed five of their six goats, and the sixth one they had to kill. That was just all oh, 500 yards from here. Yeah. Um, constantly on next door, I th see things about people, you know, having pets killed by coyotes. So if I see a coyote, it's not just about protecting my ducks. It's about being a good neighbor. Okay. And I know some people disagree with that, but we actually don't have, it might sound like I just told you we have a big coyote problem. We don't because I have a lot of neighbors that feel the same way. We have a lot of neighbors that don't. We've got some, you know, blue hairs and some Karens and some people that watch too many Disney's movies like their documentaries. We have some of those on our next door and all. But in general, most of the people around here are, are you know, kind of country people. They understand how that works. And it's amazing how quick a blue hair Karen becomes a kill the coyote Karen when her little puppy dies. And because we shoot them, it is... A, it is only on certain, you know, rare occasions that we have these particular problem animals. I have killed, since I've been here, one coyote. But if I see another one, yes, it's getting a lead pill. Now, on some of the other stuff Jeff mentioned, like snakes, I am a person that if I see a venomous snake, 
and I have tools around me to work with, even improvised tools. I have enough experience, I will catch and relocate a venomous snake to where it is not a problem. I don't do it often, but I will do it. I am also a person that if I do not have the effing time to jack around with it, I have kids here too, and if I were to find like a big rattler or something out by my coop, I'm going to lop its head off. And I love snakes. But there's a practice, and then the other thing is like, is this animal at a place where I can safely uh, capture and relocate it, or is it, I'm going to put myself at risk? It's dead. It's dead. Mosquitoes, I mitigate those primarily with Gambrosia, which are mosquito fish. We have a, no mosquito problem around here. Do all the water we have, no mosquito problems. When we have mosquitoes is when there's heavy rainfall and it's like my neighbor's woods and stuff where they're breeding in puddles. So the, now I will tell you another thing that I do with mosquitoes. We occasionally, hadn't had one in three years, but occasionally we'll have a very wet spring where people always say, swales, mosquitoes, and you're like, just stop. They're not meant to hold it. But when you get, like the one year we got 28 days of rain in May, 28 days of rain in May. One more time. 28 days of rain in May. Go look at a calendar. And it's like significant rainfall. Like measurable rainfall. Uh, the swells filled up. They did. And they did hold mosquito wigglers. And I took some BT mosquito dunks and I threw them in there once every two weeks. And when those swales dried up, there was literally piles of dead high phosphorus wigglers that then gave their essence to the land, and the ducks ate the crap out of them, because BT doesn't hurt ducks. So there are things I will kill. I'm sure there are that you will too. But I do think that this idea of wiping things out is really foolhardy, that everything serves a purpose. Oh, and one more thing I will kill on site. And, and I don't necessarily kill all of them on site, because it takes time. <laughs> But I, I just immediately, like, if they're in the wrong place, they go instantly, it's fire ants. But again, we're talking about an invasive species that has no place here. It has no predators at all. But that's it. That's love to hear your thoughts on that. If you want to comment on today's episode, we don't get a lot of blog comments because there's so much discussion, Telegram and Facebook, even though I don't go there, and me, we, and Gab, and all the other places. That's kind of divided it up. But that'd be a good one to comment on. What would you kill on site, and what would you never kill, even though it could be a problem, if you want to comment on today's episode? Again, it is episode 3,436. With that, let's go on to designing the ideal home when you're starting from scratch and you can do anything you want. Hey, Jack and all. Um, Ben Falk with Whole Systems Design. Question from Zach. Zachary about um, the ideal way you would build a, a new home from scratch well obviously it depends on a lot of different things you said you're in um texas so climate is one i would start with you're in east texas obviously texas has a lot of different climates um so um there's a lot of climate challenges in that part of the world like there is in most places there you have to deal with heat in addition to probably some cold in the winter um, we're obviously in a much colder climate up here in Vermont so heat isn't in nearly the issue either way hot or cold I recommend full basements I know you can't do that practically in some parts of Texas some parts other parts of the world as well here Anyone who can afford to is going to do a full basement there. I've talked with Jack about this. Um, you know, you'd have to blast, and even then it might fill with water, depending on what it's like in that part of East Texas. But I would recommend a full basement if you can do it. Um, that's for cool space in the summer. That's for tornado safety. That's for root cellar 
you know, cool space for lots of reasons. One would be to, to store uh, food and uh, of all kinds, not just roots. Uh, but cool storage is really valuable. Um, comfortable space in the high summer, etc. cetera. Um, if you can't do that, I would try to make an underground space available somehow outside the home. If you have a little slope, you could... You could get up onto to be above the water table if that's a problem, although I doubt it is in some of that area. Um, so that's going to determine a lot about siting your home, you know, just, just establishing a basement potentially. Um, of course, then you've got, you always want a passive solar home if you have a heating need, which you do for some of the year, but then you also have a major cooling need uh, and need to stay, you know, out of the heat in the summer. So that may dictate more of the siding of your house than heating. Um, you know, you probably want to avoid a lot of Western facing glass in, in places with big cooling loads. Um, so, cause that just heats up the home late day and makes it very uncomfortable at night. You know, I would first and foremost be thinking about major weather events like tornadoes because you you have those in that part of the world as far as i understand uh and then heat as the next big like vulnerability and water so water harvesting would obviously be a big big feature of a house like that that's easy to do especially if you think about it from scratch off the roofs uh, not for drinking i'm not a fan of that but at least for just wa- water for all the other reasons you need water um and and then the the cooling ability to stay cool. So avoid west facing glass landscape towards the western sector of the house with trees. Um, potentially face like southeast, not even south, and definitely not southwest or west, um, you know, or even northwest because that's really where a lot of heat comes from at the end of the day. Um, well, maybe not that that latitude. Probably that'd be dead west. Um, so those would be the two primary ways I'd I'd design around as far as like vulnerabilities, so to speak. And then I would be focused on, you know, what materials are available in that part of the world. I mean, building with local materials is always a good idea when you can. Um, so this might be, you know, a, a clay, like straw clay type of home. It could be concrete to some extent. It could be wood framed, um, you know, up here. Wood framed with cellulose insulation is basically impossible to beat. Uh, down there, straw bale can be reasonable, especially with a wood frame. You know, I would look into like vernacular and like modern twists on vernacular approaches in that part of the world. But a vernacular design and wherever you're building, how people have approached housing for a long time is going to be going to give you a lot of of good clues as to the optimal strategies for a, a low energy passive home and that's what you're shooting for a home that requires as little energy as possible to run uh, and is going to function as well as possible without electricity without active cooling without active heating Um, to me it's not a, a, a resilient home if it doesn't have a wood stove in it pretty much unless you really have reliable sunshine in the cold season, which you may down there. So passive solar for winter months when the sun's at lower angles is important, of course, to consider. So make sure your south-facing glass, southeast-facing glass, has high SHGC ratings, solar heat gain coefficient. Might not want to be low emissivity to maximize that, although in that part of the world, low E may make more sense, does make more sense than it does in this part of the world. 
you want. It's pretty realistic to get most of your winter heat in that part of the world from solar alone, direct solar, passive solar. So just look into how to do that. It's not that hard. You, you size your overhangs to avoid summer heat loads, summer heat coming in, and uh, but have the winter sun be low enough to, to completely penetrate the building to heat it up. You want a lot of thermal mass, ideally, as possible. As much thermal mass inside the building envelope is always a good thing as possible, unless you're in tropical environments. But there's a reason vernacular building approaches in that part of the world are very mass-based because it helps buffer those diurnal temperature swings. So I would do maybe like an earthen floor, timber frame can be pretty heavy, masonry inside, all of those things. The more weight you have inside your envelope, plaster, etc., the better. Um, thousands of kilos, ideally, inside the envelope are going to buffer the day-night temperature swing, the diurnal temperature swing, which... The drier your climate, the more that is, the greater that is. So those are some overall strategies. Obviously, your question is a huge question. It demands books and whole workshops on it slash uh, degrees <laughs> focused on, on answering that question. Um, but that's those are some um, primary ways to at least frame uh, that that overall question that you have. Good luck. You know, on the basement thing, you know, and Ben talking about blocks, that's here. Uh, East Texas, I I don't know a single place in East, East Texas that's like this area. Uh, East Texas is mostly sand and clay. It's really easy to dig a hole. Uh, that's not what precludes basements in that part of Texas. What it is, as he mentioned, could possibly flood, and we have incredibly um, heavy clay soils, especially out that way. Um, and in those clay soils, you have a lot of foundation problems, and a basement can be a thing that aggravates the inevitable foundation problems, or it can be something that actually mitigates it to a great degree, but it requires significant additional response and some extra steps, and one of the problems that we have is there's not a lot of builders around here that are familiar with what needs to be done because so few people do it, which to me is a huge mistake it's something we should be doing. I always look at a basement as like free space under roof. Like the cost of it compared to uh, adding, let's say you have a, a 1,200 square foot footprint of your house. And so it's two stories, you have 2,400 square feet. Uh, to expand that house, you know, uh, a 600 square feet so that you would uh, you know, get one third more, uh, a th- uh, you know, half on each story is far more expensive than putting it on top of a basement of that dimension that can later be finished out and things like that. So it's extra space, but the tornado threat here is a real thing. And there has never been a year where there hasn't been some point where we're like, shit, I really hope we don't get hit by that that swirling cloud of death on the screen right there. We've never been hit full on hard. We've had a couple close scrapes. And so having a basement would go a long way to improving safety and the survivability rates in our area. And then all the other wonderful things that come with a basement. But I completely agree with Ben's answer. And if I was building from scratch, I would go out of my way to figure out, the you know, based on the terrain and everything around me, a builder that can set me up with a basement. There is so much value in it. Moving on, let's hear about training a pup 
for potty training that's already 10 months old and was, to be blunt, well, just not taken care of properly by the previous owner. Let's go ahead and hear from Joel. Hello, everyone. This week's question comes from Chris in Kentucky. And what he's asking is he got a 10-month-old Labrador puppy who had been kept in a basement. Apparently, it had not been let out very often and had gotten used to going to the bathroom on the floor. I presume this is a concrete floor. And their question is, how do I potty train a 10-month-old Labrador puppy to stop using the bathroom inside and to start using the bathroom outside when it's supposed to. So there are two approaches that you can take to this. If it were me, I would actually combine these two things together. Um, But part of it, in terms of how quickly you can start, will depend on whether or not he has been crate trained at all. So if you can put the dog in a crate and it's not constantly carrying on and making noise, then I recommend using a crate that is sized properly to the dog. Uh, Now, what that means is that the dog can enter the crate, turn around, lay down comfortably in the crate, but that's pretty much it. So what you don't want to do when you're trying to use a crate to teach a dog to potty train properly, you don't want to give them a crate that's a lot larger than they need because what keeps them from going to the bathroom when they're in the crate is that they can't go to one end of the crate and use the bathroom and go to the other end of the crate and lay down and not be in it, right? So because of that, they'll go into their crate and they'll hold it as long as they can. And then when you let them out, you take them immediately outside to use the bathroom, praise them when they use the bathroom, and they will start to learn, I get good stuff when I go to the bathroom out here in the yard where I'm supposed to. I don't want to go to the bathroom in there in my crate. Now, if... I've occasionally seen the issue where a dog has been so trained to go to the bathroom on concrete that you take them to the grass, they won't go to the bathroom on the grass, and as soon as they get back on the concrete, they've been holding it, and then they want to go to the bathroom on the concrete. Now, if that has happened, what I generally do is I tether the dog on the grass, uh, so you need to make sure that they have shade, you need to make sure that they have Uh, some kind of cover if it's raining or if there's um, weather and then you need to make sure they have constant access to water right and I'll do this for a week or two because they can't hold the bathroom for a week or two and they're going to have to start going to the bathroom in the grass and then if I catch them going to the bathroom in the grass I praise them Uh, we use get busy so I would come up and I would see them going to the bathroom and I would say something like oh good get busy you know at a boy at a girl when they're finished giving them some pets on the head yeah you did a good job and encouraging them to go to the bathroom in the grass where you want them to. Now, you may end up in a couple situations where um, you're, the dog is roaming in the house, which I in general don't recommend, but I understand a lot of people do it. And you see them start to try and go to the bathroom. So in this particular situation, you need to be really aware of the dog and keep an eye on them, right? So that if they start to actually go to the bathroom in the house, you can catch them in the act. And then what I will do is I leave a little lead on them, so a little leash of some kind. And as soon as they start to go to the bathroom, I grab the leash. I pick their front legs off the ground. I take them out as quick as I can, and I take them out into the grass. And then I put them in the grass, and I say, now get busy, or whatever command you're going to use for the bathroom. And so it'll be slightly traumatic to be, you know, yanked up and taken outside really quick. But then once they go to the bathroom outside and you praise them and your voice is calm and encouraging, and then when they're finished, you give them some pets, they're like, oh, cool. I get good stuff when I go outside and use the bathroom. It's not so pleasant if I start to go to the bathroom in the inside. So I'll stop doing that and I'll start going to the bathroom outside. 
generally, using these approaches and combining them all together as necessary will solve any problems that you have with your dog going to the bathroom inside. If you start using these techniques and methods and you run into additional problems, you can always send those questions in. Uh, you can send them directly to Jack or you can text me at 813-836-9244 or send me an email at joel, J-O-E-L, at fortresscanine.com. Don't forget, if you want more dog training and uh, you want obedience or even advanced training like tracking, search and rescue stuff, uh, protection work, or service dog training, you can always go check out canineacademy.us. I highly recommend you use the link on Jack's website, thesurvivalpodcast.com. That way he'll get the affiliate credit for that um, sign-up, and uh, we'd be happy to answer any other questions that you guys have. Until next time, train hard and stay safe. So we'll just say that I I agree with everything here. The one thing, and he kind of alluded to this, is it can be very difficult to crate train a dog that was never crate trained. Because they can have a very bad reaction to being put in a crate. And my bet my bet here is that this dog probably wasn't. Or if it was, it may have some, uh, you know, uh, PT doggy SD, you know, here or something from it. So uh, try it, see if it works, and then, you know, use the other methods as well. Um, but I've had one that I couldn't crate train. Just one, and it's Charlie. When he was, he was 12-week-old pup. And... He literally destroyed crates. We put him in one of the typical plastic crates with the metal door. He ate it. He worked on it until he got out of it. Uh, We put him in one that was all metal, and he pushed it over on its side, and he continued to do that until eventually it broke the clips that held the base on it, which is significantly difficult to do, and we gave up at that point. Fortunately, he was well on the way to understanding potty training when we got him at 12 weeks. He really didn't want to go to the bathroom in the house, and it didn't take a lot of work to get past that. But it it took away a valid tool because he was so resistant to it. Crying, whining, etc. is fine. When a dog starts like literally injuring themselves to gain exit, you, you, you might have to come up with some other things. But patience in this situation and understand that this is going to be a hard job because somebody else did a shitty job. And kudos to you for taking a dog in this situation because the dog needs you. The dog needs you. And if you let the dog outside enough, the tethering works if you have the right you know time of year where it's not going to freeze or die of heat. Um, the tethering alone will go a long way because once the dog becomes accustomed to going outside, then it's just a matter of when you're inside, keep an eye on the dog. If the dog, you know, like you said, if he looks like he's going to go, nope, stop that, quit, outside. And once the dog, under, especially the breed you have here, you had a great breed to work with, once this dog understands what you want, this is a breed that exists to please its master. It will give it to you. It's it's not. There's some breeds this would be tougher. Like a husky in this situation would be really hard uh, compared to you know a, a lab or a golden or something like that. All right, let's go on and let's hear about fodder trees invading your garden from a mile and a half away with Nick Ferguson. Nick, take it away. Hey there, Nick Ferguson from Homegrown Liberty and RarePlantStore.com here with an expert counsel answer for Matt on trees close to septic. Question for Nick Ferguson: How far apart should I plant? How far should I plant hybrid poplar or hybrid willow from a septic system, house, 
or veggie garden details. I have a lot of land, roughly 0.9 acres in West New Hampshire, zone something. Uh, I'm interested in growing some poplar and willow to supplement wood heat. I've been told by people that willow and poplar trees would wreck my garden to do... Uh, due to high root systems. I have also been told they would find their way to my septic no matter where I plant them. How far away should I plant these trees from my garden, home, and septic tank? Thanks, Matt. Okay. To start off, the garden thing is probably not a major concern, but it is a concern, especially if you till, because they are going to send roots um, into the garden because it's going to be fertilized, it's going to be watered, um, it's going to be a great place for roots to go to get what they need. Um, and most trees will keep the majority, the vast majority of their roots within the top 8 to 12 inches of soil. So um, it is a problem, but it's not a you know a plan-killing problem. If you use some preparation, um, that problem can be mitigated to some degree. Proximity to a house is a larger problem, and septic is an even greater problem. I don't suggest planting either poplar or willow anywhere within 75 feet of either septic, leach fields, or any kind of sewage pipe, and honestly, um, even any kind of like water main. Uh, and truth be told, 100 feet makes me a lot more comfortable. Um, the only way I'd consider planting... Uh, those trees would be if you install a root barrier, the same control measure works for your garden as well as the others, but you still run the risk of the barrier failing. So you have to do your own risk assessment on that. I personally wouldn't plant either of these tree species within 100 feet of foundations or any type of sewage or water main, even with a root barrier, although the root barrier uh, can sometimes last for 50, 60, 75 years. So with that caveat out of the way, the way I'd personally install a root barrier, if you decide to go that route, would be to use a thick rubber like a retired conveyor belt, at least two feet wide, um, because you want to get a, a good at least 18 inches in the ground. So what you do is you trench, either you dig it with a, uh, a pick and mattock or whatever, or you use a trencher for the weekend. You dig a vertical trench, make sure to leave a couple inches of rubber sticking out the top, um, and then you install the solid rubber conveyor belt, you backfill, and you pack it in. And the roots are going to hit that barrier and divert away from the protected area. It's unlikely they're going to turn a 90 down and come back up on the other side, but it's still possible. Um, I wouldn't hesitate to do this surrounding an in-ground garden because it helps keep out things like Bermuda grass which is an absolute nightmare in a garden. The willow roots are a pain, but honestly, they're easy enough to cut once every, I don't know, two or three years with a trencher. Um, uh, you can space that interval out further the further north you go because the trees just don't grow as fast. Um, so, you know, if you're wanting to manage that problem it, with a garden because uh, I don't know how your property's laid out, then you could potentially just like once a year run a trencher along the same path and just cut any roots that are coming through. You rent a trencher for the weekend or whatever, it's a 100 bucks. So even if you did that every two years, that's $50 a year to not have those roots grown into your garden. That's a really easy, simple solution. The other option is to, you know, 
it, it wouldn't you wouldn't be able to grow a whole heck of a lot of like fuel wood, but if you're wanting to grow something more for like the kindling, the smaller bits of wood that you're going to put in there to get the larger stuff going, the other option is you could grow them kind of like a um, you know, a multi-year coppice system and put them in those really large pots and just copy the last expert counsel question I fielded and just grow your trees in those large pots. Just make sure to put an impermeable barrier under the pots or they will root into the ground. Great question. Keep them coming. Um, uh, real quick, in other news, I wanted to let everyone know I'm doing a short consulting tour starting March 4th up in Missouri. It might be a couple of days earlier than that. I don't exactly know. I'm going to be teaching a class at Caleb House. They're associated with Bear Independent, located in Fort Smith, Arkansas, on the 8th of March. Then I'll likely be headed towards North Texas, maybe towards the DFW area, uh, Greenville, Texas, and then back through East Texas. I might end up heading uh, south towards uh, Central Texas, just depending on um, what kind of response I get on this. So if you're in Arkansas, Southern Missouri, North and East Texas, and maybe, you know, Southeast Texas, there's a chance I might be able to fit you in on my consulting tour. This is probably the last one I'm going to be doing with my current rates because Jack, Nicole, and John Willis have convinced me to raise my rates, So, and David, of course. Uh, so now's the time. If you've been waiting, uh, send me an email to nick at homegrownliberty.com with consulting in the subject line to get looped in on my logistics planning. Normal day rate currently is around $1,400 for a full day on site while I'm on a tour. If it's not on a tour and it's just like I'm going out there and back or flying or whatever, then that number changes. So to put it in perspective, one of my most recent clients saved literally $100,000 in their budget by having me out to assess the properties they were thinking about buying. Just, you know, putting that in perspective. Um, also, I got a count on hybrid willow cuttings. So over at rareplantstore.com, the inventory is restocked, and I'm not sold out of those anymore, just in case you were over there recently and bummed about missing the best value I have in cuttings. Thanks for the questions, guys, and thanks, Jack, for running such a great show and bringing such an amazing community together. I love you all. I'm Nick Ferguson from Homegrown Liberty. Do good things. Just adding a little kicker for Nick there, he does still have a lot of the tree guilds uh, for uh, ordering right now for spring delivery. Uh, the Deer Garden, uh, the Fuelwood Guild, all of that stuff, and the Fodder Tree Guild, all of it is available. And you definitely should take advantage of it because it, it does sell out every year. And then people are like, well, where can I get them? And it's in 2025 is the answer. Anyway. With that, let's move on, and we've got another one now for you. This is John Pugliano, and he's going to talk to you about investing in real estate without actually owning property or being a landlord. Hello, TSP. Today we have a question from Clint, and he's interested in profiting from real estate, but he doesn't necessarily want to own real estate directly, so he's been doing research on REITs, that's Real Estate Investment Trusts, Clint is asking what I think about REITs, but his real question, his real underlying question, is dealing with investing in real estate. So a point I want to make, and I don't want to get too far down in the weeds in this, 
But a, a point I want to make is that you can invest in real estate without necessarily owning a REIT. A REIT is a very specific and narrow definition for a particular form of real estate investing. As an example, there's a REIT called Boston Properties. It trades on the New York Stock Exchange. If you didn't know that it was a REIT, you would think it was simply a stock that invests in real estate. Its legal entity is that of a REIT. While at the same time, there's another company called Simon Properties. On the surface, they look like a REIT, but they're not legally set up as a real estate investment trust. And stepping back a little bit farther, there's a lot of companies which really derive a great deal of their revenue and profits from real estate, and their overall performance can very much be tracked to that of you know general commercial real estate, even though they're not considered real estate companies at all. And I'm thinking of things like McDonald's. On a global scale, McDonald's owns something like 55% of the properties and buildings that their franchisees operate out of. And so what that means in terms of the stability of a company like McDonald's is that, say you hit a recession and fast food sales go down. Well, McDonald's Corporation would suffer from that slowdown because they're not going to get as much royalty revenues from the franchise owners. But at the same time, because they own all that real estate, the monthly rents are a fixed amount of revenue regardless of whether the economy is in a recession or not. So that's what makes a company like McDonald's fairly recession-proof and generally have fairly predictable profits because they do have that large amount of rental real estate exposure. Bottom line, a real estate investment trust is not the only way to invest in real estate through the stock market. It is a very good way, and I bring up all these other factors because you ask what my opinion of, of REITs is, and it's the same way it would say, well, what's my opinion of the stock market? Which particular stock? REITs are no different. You can literally find a REIT that own specific properties that can be as diverse as shopping malls or prisons or office space, you know, warehouse and logistics, data centers, college dorms, cell phone towers, kidney dialysis centers. I mean, there's a real estate investment trust for just about anything. As a side note to all these different types of properties that a REIT can own and be invested in, don't just look at the name of the REIT. You know, just because the name says that it owns farmland doesn't necessarily mean that it does. Wall Street has the very same bad habit that the government does in naming investment vehicles, much like the Congress names legislation. So there is a great deal of segmentation within the REIT industry, but you have to be very careful because it's not so much the sector that a REIT is invested in, it's the management team and how they actually run the operation, just like you'd find with a particular company. You know, McDonald's may be a great fast food chain operator, but that doesn't mean that everybody in the fast food business is going to make money simply because McDonald's does. So it really comes down to not only picking the right trend in terms of what areas of real estate are appreciating, but also who and how effectively that REIT is being managed. Note, most investors that are going into REITs are doing it because they want to receive a dividend. They want to receive some type of steady income. But you have to look beyond the dividend itself because the dividend can be very misleading and you can imagine how unscrupulous operators would use a, a high dividend to lure people into bad investments. 
When it comes to dividends, obviously you're naturally going to be attracted to a higher dividend over a lower dividend. Now you might think that that simply means that they're more profitable, but that may not be the case at all. They simply may be using balance sheet engineering to pay out an excess amount of their cash flow or even beyond their cash flow to meet that higher dividend. For example, by definition, all real estate investment trusts have to pay at least 90% of their profits out as a dividend. That's part of the legal structure of what makes them a REIT. But there are some REITs, I saw one the other day that was paying something like 135% of its profits out as a dividend. Well, that's a clear example of a company that's robbing Peter to pay Paul, right? They're paying an exceptionally high dividend, but they're paying 30-some percent more out than what they take in. So they're doing some borrowing and they're using leverage in what you may consider maybe a Ponzi scheme to attract investors. And they can only keep that up for so long. And it may not necessarily be nefarious in and of itself. Maybe they hit upon some bad times and they want to maintain a high dividend, and they think they'll make it up with more efficient operations in the future. But again, it's something you should watch for. Just because it has a high dividend doesn't mean it's a highly profitable or highly stable REIT. Also, don't just look at the dividend, but look at the actual price stability and appreciation of the REIT itself. Because the price of the REIT will fluctuate just like a stock does. And so, if your REIT's paying out 10% in dividends but the price of the REIT is going down by 15%, then you're not making any money, right? In real terms, you're actually losing 5%. Running out of time here, but one final thing I want to warn you about, and that's liquidity. A REIT, depending upon how and where it's traded, they all have different redemption practices. Just because you can buy into a REIT doesn't mean that it's that easy to sell. And if you read the fine print on the prospectus, you'll see phrases like, restricted redemptions or limited redemptions and you have to be extremely careful with this i'll give you one final example here there's a reit called bright b-r-e-i-t it's sponsored by blackstone this is not black rock it's blackstone but they operate very similar to black rock and in fact this is the company that during the pandemic you heard about all the residential homes that were being bought up by like hedge funds well blackstone was part of all that and guess what they got in over their skis They bought off more than they can chew. They paid higher prices on properties and in regions they weren't familiar with. And now, you know, a couple years later, they're having problems managing those properties and they're not anywhere near as profitable as they thought they would. And so likewise, if you are an owner of that REIT, you can't currently get your money back because they've limited and restricted redemptions. Now, I bring this one up because this particular Blackstone product is not just something that's sold to the average Joe Sixpack. To get into this REIT, it was a private placement, and you had to be a high-level accredited investor, and this was sold as being institutional quality properties. And if they can get away by packaging these bad investments up and selling them to institutional and accredited investors, which are sophisticated, then how much more is just Joe Sixpack investor likely to buy something that he's going to regret? Okay, to sum it all up, Clint, listen, I think REITs are a great way to get exposure to real estate, but like all things, you got to be careful and know what you're buying. Hey, well, thanks for the question. Until next time, this is John Pugliano from Investable Wealth and the Wealth Stunning Podcast. 
So just a little kicker for John on this, on the, you know, you can't buy something just because they called it something because it may not be what it's called. I would look at the name of any ETF or mutual fund or anything like that, um, yeah, bond fund even, I don't care. I would look at it the way you look at the name of a bill passed by government. You know, they may put up a bill that says something like the border security bill. And it could, in fact, actually only be about border security and be focused on that. Even if it did a bad job, at least it would be what it says it is, but it usually isn't. I wouldn't say it's as bad with mutual funds and ETFs. You know, if you if you buy SLV, you are in fact investing in silver. That's all there is. It's like so there are a lot. There's some really great examples of they do what they say and say what they do, and then they do as well as the sector does, and that's all you can ask for. But there's a lot of bullshit, and so just keep that in mind whenever you pick something to invest in, as far as ETFs and all that you are actually getting what you think you're getting. Uh, think of it like when you go to buy eggs in the store and they say cage-free. Well, the chickens are not in a cage, but they're in a giant cage that they don't call a cage. They call it a chicken house, right? They're, they're, there's free range, and it's not free range either. Unless you know you're dealing with pastured animals, then, you know, you, you, these names don't really mean a lot. And there is some of that in that space. All right, with that, let's talk about uh, getting ready for spring. Like I said, most of us are three to four weeks maximum from when we really need to start planting our seeds in our little pots and stuff for setting out in our garden if we're going to do that this year. It sneaks up on you. And the whole point of doing it, just to drive that home, is if you put the seed in the ground outside at the time you're supposed to put it in the pot inside, it would die because it's too cold out there. So it's hard for us to think about the frost free, you know, after our last frost day of spring, when we're freezing our buttholes off, right? So it's easy for you to kind of snooze on this, and you got other things going on, and it slips right past you. And next thing you know, you should have started them three weeks ago. Now they're three weeks late, and next thing you know, I'm buying them at the store. Yeah. And when you hear what I talk about today, you're going to want to, if if you can, start your own plants more than ever. Now, what I want to talk to you about is using bioactive soil when starting your plants in your spring gardens. And the most important biology uh, in there is going to be fungi, uh, mycorrhizal fungi and other soil fungi. And I want to talk about why that's the case and why I will totally use a plant that I bought in a nursery, but I would prefer not to have to. Most of the stuff that's grown in these potting soils and stuff in these nurseries, unless specifically stated otherwise, is using a lot of synthetic fertilizers. Now, I'm not worried about the synthetic fertilizer damaging my garden, you know, six to eight weeks after that plant was planted. It's such an insignificant amount compared to the whole, I'm not worried about it. The same thing with the fact that they may be sprayed with an insecticide or something. The stuff is not as persistent as people make it out to be. I'm not really concerned about that either. I'm concerned about the overall health of the plant. And what the nurseries have gotten really good at is making a sick plant look healthy. You just pump it full of so much chemical that it's bright green and it looks healthy. But the plant has lived in an artificial reality for its whole life at that point. The soil was a perfect temperature for germination. It was kept in a wind-free environment. It was watered. It was treated with love because, you know what, you can spend a lot of time doting on a tomato plant that you're going to sell to somebody for five 
dollars, which is another reason I don't like buying plants anymore. I remember not so long ago you could go buy a six plant six pack of peppers or tomatoes or whatever for like two bucks. And other than the other things I'm going to cover with you, that's kind of like wow. Why? I mean, you, you got to. Do you really need to start your own place? But when you start paying four, five, six bucks a plant, which a lot of these plants are now, and the plant itself is no bigger than the ones that would have come in the six pack, even though it's in more dirt and it's in a bigger container, the plant itself is that not that much bigger, and yet they're selling it for. You know, three or four x the one plant is three to four times what we used to buy six packs for ten, fifteen years ago. So there's an economic equation there, but there's something else going on altogether. We have, by and large, ignored the innate intelligence of biology in our gardens and in our plants. And when a seed germinates, there is a limited time for it to start forming symbiotic relationships with soil fungi and soil organisms where it will even be able to. And then the ones that still can sort of kind of will never gain the level of interaction with the soil organisms had they been in contact with fungi and bacteria from the beginning. And, and I'm going to use a word here that's sort of planamorphizing. We say anamorphizing, we treat animals like humans. So plantamorphizing, I guess, treating plants like humans. I don't mean the word literally, but it's the best word I have to convey what's going on because we don't fully understand it ourselves yet at the molecular or biological level. The word is no. When that seed germinates and it's already in contact with soil fungi, it knows the relationship from the time that it is born. And think of the life of a tomato compared to the life of a human. The tomato plant is going to live six to eight months, depending on your climate, and it's going to die. So a day is a month? No, a day is more than a month to a tomato. A week is a year. And so a tomato plant that's eight weeks old, right? It, it's probably more than eight years old. It's the equivalent of a human being about 15 to 20, depending on your climate and how long it's going to live. So imagine a human baby that didn't have the things that it needed to thrive until it was six, seven, eight years old, and its body had not adapted to utilize it properly, and it would then have some other period of time that it would have to gain the adaptation. You get kids with stunted growth, so like uh, chemically created dwarfism or something like that, and then they would probably not produce the healthiest offspring, even if you were saving your seeds. You see how that works? So if we can get the plant into a place where it is in a biologically active environment and it forms relationships and it sees that it has dependencies. And that's another word I'm going to use that you know, plants don't really see. But how do we explain this when we haven't done enough to fully understand it? We just know that it is. So the plant needs to not only form the relationship and the ability to do so, but understand Again, that's not the right word, but it's a good analogy. Understand its dependence on biology. So that it will then seek out 
that relationship rather than be chemically dependent. That's another way to think about it. Imagine having children born into chemical dependency, which really sucks that it actually does happen. But imagine that chemical dependency being artificially extended until that child was an adolescent. And then take away the chemicals, give the child everything it needs naturally, and say, Thrive! You'd say, you're a sick bastard, and you'd be right. That's what we do to our plants, isn't it? If we take our plants and we douse them with chemical fertilizers, and we put them in basically inert media that we call potting soil, because it's got you know, a little bit of like shitty compost in it and some stuff that lightens it called perlite, it looks and smells pretty good, and it makes the plant grow fast, it doesn't mean we haven't created a chemically dependent plant. This is why... When I sat down and decided to launch Home Food Systems and start developing courses for you guys, and I thought to myself, self, what should be the first course? And I knew it couldn't be like the aquatics course I've talked about that's literally like a college curriculum, you know, crammed into a single course, uh, that it couldn't be that. I needed something a little bit easier to start out with, and I wanted the core of what would make people successful. And that core, and, and it, this is the core of the first three courses, except for the free one that's about probably going to be released very soon on principle-based design, is composting, cover cropping, and biochar. And of those three, the one that was the most fundamentally important, because it actually made the other two really, really work, was the compost. I put out on the show yesterday in the video, I put out a picture on social media yesterday, I put out a post today that shows what it looks like when you compare my compost to some of the best potting soil you can buy. Fox Farms Happy Frog Potting Soil. If you said, Jack, I don't have any compost, I'm not going to have any compost, I want to start my seeds, what do I buy? I would tell you, and there's some other things, and we'll save it because I'm going to do a show on this uh, soon, on just seed starting. We need to do this every year about this time. Uh, but I would say Fox Farms would be as good or better than anything else you could get your hands on. Well, I stuck cuttings from Longevity Spinach into a cup with Fox Farm soil and one with my bio, bioactive compost in it. All I'll say is look at the picture. All I'll say is look at the picture. Now, both of these plants were in fact grown before they were cut in my garden, which is incredibly bioactive, right? So they know the biology, but it's just not there in the fox farm soil, which is bioactive to a degree. And there's ways to up that, but I didn't here. I took it straight out of the bag, put it in the cup, wet it down, stuck the cutting in, took my compost, did nothing to it, nothing at all. Zero, okay? Zero I did to it. Now there is biochar in it because it's in the litter from the coop, but I didn't add anything. It's exactly the way that I apply it to my garden. Stuck it in another cup, put it side by side. The growth is more than... It's extent, It's at least 3x the growth. And the new growth, there's the total number of leaves, not even biomass, is at least two times the new growth as you prune it back and restick the tips and the new growth starts to flush and it becomes more bush-like. This is... Now... now Translate that too, and again, I'm going to be doing this episode soon, probably, probably next week, probably or Monday or Tuesday next week. I'm going to do an episode on seed starting, and I'm going to tell you if you don't yet have compost like this, the best course of action to get as close as you can. Yeah, 
But when we start now, we're going to take a seed from a tomato and we're going to put it into a cup and it's going to be a little tiny thing. And it's going to grow into this plant that's six, eight inches tall by the time we set it out in the ground. What do we want to be putting into the ground? A chemically dependent child who has never known how to get by in the wild. Or a very shelter, you shelter your children, but you've taught it to get by in the wild from the day that it emerged from an embryo into a thing. The day that that first little rootlet popped out of the seed, before the seed cap even came off the, the, the plant, the green part that comes above the ground, just when that little root was in the ground, it was already like, oh, I get it. This is how I work. This is how I function. Again, I'm, I'm plantomorphizing, right? We don't have the words to describe this reaction that these bacteria and these fungi are immediately in touch with that root system before it even commits its first act of photosynthesis. It can't photosynthesize because the green part is still either under the soil or still under the cap of the seed. And it's already living its life. It's the, it's the, the wildebeest calf that is dropped by the pregnant mother onto the plains, is licked off, and 30 minutes in can run. Because it better run or a lion's going to eat it. In some ways, for a plant, you know, the wildebeest's ability to defend itself is the ability to smell, see, and run, and stay in a herd. But it's mobile. It can move. And there's like, you know, a, a pride of like 10 lions, and there's like 50,000 wildebeests. So your odds of getting the chomp are pretty low, especially when you're young and you got a lot of energy. If you're a plant, you can't move. You have to sit there and take it. You develop chemical defenses. You use biology to develop your chemistry. So who is the tough little wildebeest? And who is the wildebeest that was born without the ability to run that's supposed to learn to run while the lions are hunting? And that's why you need to be using bioactive compost. You need to be using bioactive potting soil, and you need to use biology in your gardens. And biology needs to be part of what you do for your plants from the day they sprout to the day you harvest them. And I didn't always do this. I even taught some things counter to that. I didn't realize what, what was really going on yet. This is what I've developed over a lifetime, but specifically over 10 years of being in this harsh environment on this property. I have never grown plants the way that I did last year. I have never grown I've never grown pepper plants that don't just I mean I've always they, my buddy David calls me the pepper whisperer, right? So I've always done great with peppers. I've never grown pepper plants. You get two freezes in a row. Lowest temperature in that that 48 hour period was 27 degrees. And 80% of the pepper plants were still alive and looking good. 80% of my uh my eggplants, I actually had students who were like, can I take the eggplants since we're going to cut these plants down? And yeah, you can have them. Survive to freeze, let alone the insect. Bio, biology. In Matt Powers' uh, seminar I spoke at last week, when I was asked, what is the main thing that holds back regenerative agriculture? It's that all our solutions are chemical. Even the organic ones are chemical instead of biological. Biology trumps chemistry every time. Again, I invite you to take the bioreactor compost course, because even though that's going to take a year to make your first batch of compost mature, you'll learn a lot, you'll understand a lot, and when something takes a long time to do, 
Time to start doing it is now, kind of like a tree. When's the best time to plant a tree? Ten years ago, when's the next best time? Today. Start that journey today. I promise you, you will not regret the education you get there. We have almost 100 students now, and we haven't had a complaint yet. We've had some technical issues that you know Tom's been great about fixing. We haven't had a, a single complaint on the content and the material yet. That's a pretty good test sample. So if you've been waiting, jump in now. Anyway, with that, I want to remind you guys you can help support this show by doing your online shopping, beginning where? tspaz.com. That is T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. tspaz.com, you'll find all of the things that I recommend. Uh, and today's item of the day isn't really an item of the day. It is a uh, like a deal of the day alert is what I call them. So I'm a DeWalt guy. Some of you aren't. That's okay. You shouldn't become one just because I'm one. But if you're a DeWalt tool person and you have cordless DeWalt tools, I'll bet you if there is a tool that they make that's cordless, that's a standard tool, not some weird thing, but like, you know, a drill, an impact driver, a skill saw, all that stuff. I bet if there's any of them you don't have yet, it's a jigsaw. It's a jigsaw. And it's because it is a, out of all the tools other than maybe an angle grinder, the one you will reach for the least. But when you need it, it's what you really need. You can get by, but it's not ideal. So, given that's the case, I think it makes a lot of sense. Very few people are going to buy the jigsaw with the batteries and the charger, because you already got those, right? And you wait for batteries to go on sale and pick up your 5-amp hour or 6-amp hour batteries. So what you do is you buy the bare tool and you wait for it to go on sale. It's on sale in a big way today. How about 41% off? And this is like top-of-the-line brushless. This is like the best one they make. It's on sale today for 122 bucks. Normally, it's like $206 or $210 or something like that. And I will tell you, I don't even know. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to click right now while we're doing this and see if it actually is the price that I just said. It's $121.20, 41% off, $122. It is for now. And that's how I describe it with DeWalt. DeWalt, when they run sales, especially on Amazon, they must have somebody in marketing that says, we need to sell X amount of these things by this period. And they take and they project that. And when the sale moves enough product based on standard sales, they start raising the price back, and then they go back to full price. And they do this all the time, the very short-lived sales. So if you need a jigsaw, and you have the funds, and you want to get one at 40% off, today would be the day you can find it at the survivalpodcast.com or tspaz, T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. Remember, no matter what you buy, when you're going to shop online, if you start at tspaz.com, you help us out, and you support. Oh, geez, I, uh, I missed something there. Let me append this real quick. Uh, I got an email this morning from Brian Black at ITS Tactical, and it wasn't a per- you know, Brian and Kelly Black are personal friends of, of myself and Dorothy. It wasn't anything like that. So they're regular marketing emails that go out. They have a titanium lockpick set that normally sells for fifty bucks. It's awesome. Titanium is the way to go. We talk about something that lasts forever. Normally fifty bucks on sale for fifteen bucks. I wasn't asked. I don't get a commission. I don't have any skin in the game on this. I put out a post today about it just because I thought y'all would want to know on that badass of a deal. So you can find that in the Daily Mail or at the survivalpodcast.com. Do also consider becoming an MSB member. You know, both our sponsors today do really great discounts. Start nine 9% off for MSB members. Above phone, 75 bucks on a $50 annual membership. And my bioreactor compost course, it's not going to pay for your membership as a whole, but five bucks is five bucks. And we give MSB members off five bucks, and every course we do at HFC or HFS will have 
uh, discount for MSV. I mean, I'm not going to go out and find people giving you discounts and have a product where you're not giving you a discount. It's not going to happen. So it is a great way to support us and put money back in your pocket. Um, you know, I order most of my cannabis stuff. I order uh, from uh, Akira Botanicals. That's kind of like for most of the stuff I order, my number one uh, place that I go. And then Angie's Garden uh, because they have a sleep aid CBD product that is just like I call it non-optional. Like you use it, you better use it when you want to go to sleep because you're going to go to sleep. It's made with CBN. And, you know, those two alone, if I had to buy my own membership, I would buy it because it more than pays for it. Uh, the coffee discounts to Food Forest Farms and Hollow Roast and Mai Tai, if you drink coffee, seed discounts, plant discounts, again, just go to the survivalpodcast.com forward slash members to learn more. With that, we're wrapped up for the week with uh, a regularly scheduled program, I guess, or how you would ever put it. Tomorrow we'll have a Friday flashback, and then we'll do it all again next week. Take care, guys. Catch you on Monday. Are they gonna bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have a house the American way. A dollar down, a dollar a month, and you never have.